Chapter 5 of Moods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Moods by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter 5 A Golden Wedding. Hitherto they had been a most decorous crew, but the next morning something in the air seemed to cause a general overflow of spirits and they went up the river like a party of children on a merry-making. Sylvia decorated herself with garlands till she looked like a mermaid. Mark, as skipper, issued his orders with the true marble-head twang. Moore kept up a fire of pun-provoking raillery. Warwick sung like a jovial giant, while the Kelpie danced over the water as if inspired with the universal gaiety, and the very ripples seemed to laugh as they hurried by. Mark! There is a boat coming up behind us with three gentlemen in it, who evidently intend to pass us with a great display of skill. Of course you won't let it," said Sylvia, welcoming the prospect of a race. Her brother looked over his shoulder, took a critical survey, and nodded approvingly. They are worth a lesson, and shall have it. Easy now till they pass, and then hard all, and give them a specimen of high art. A sudden lull ensued on board the Kelpie while the blue shirts approached, caught and passed with great display of science, as Sylvia had prophesied, and as good an imitation of demeanour of experienced watermen as could be assumed by a trio of studious youths, not yet out of their teens. As the foam of their wake broke against the other boat's side, Mark hailed them. "'Good morning, gentlemen. We'll wait for you above there at the bend.' "'All serene,' returned the rival helmsman, with a bow in honour of Sylvia while the other two caused a perceptible increase in the speed of the Juanita, whose sentimental name was not at all in keeping with its rakish appearance. "'Short-sighted infants to waste their wind in that style, but they pull well for their years,' observed Mark paternally, as he waited till the others had gained sufficient advantage to make the race a more equal one. "'Now then,' he whispered a moment after, and as if suddenly endowed with life the Kelpie shot away with the smooth speed given by strength and skill. Sylvia watched both boats, yearning to take an oar herself, yet full of admiration for the well-trained rowers, whose swift strokes set the river in a foam, and made the moment one of pleasure and excitement. The blue shirts did their best against competitors who had rowed in many crafts and many waters. They kept the advantage till near the bend, then Mark's crew lent their reserve strength to a final effort, and bending to their oars with a will, gained steadily, till, with a triumphant stroke, they swept far ahead, and with the oars at rest waited in magnanimous silence, till the Juanita came up, gracefully confessing her defeat by a good-humoured cheer from her panting crew. For a moment the two boats floated side by side, while the young men interchanged compliments and jokes, for a river is as a highway where all travellers may salute each other, and college boys are, Hail, fellow, well met, with all the world. Sylvia sat watching the lads, and one among them struck her fancy. The helmsman who had bowed to her was slight and swarthy, with southern eyes, vivacious manners, and a singularly melodious voice. A Spaniard, she thought, and pleased herself with this picturesque figure, till a traitorous smile about the young man's mouth betrayed that he was not unconscious of her regard. She coloured as she met the glance of mingled mirth and admiration that he gave her, and hastily began to pull off the weedy decorations which she had forgotten. 
but she paused presently, for she heard a surprised voice exclaim, "'Why, Warwick, is that you or your ghost?' Looking up, Sylvia saw Adam lift the hat he had pulled over his brows, and take a slender brown hand extended over the boat's side with something like reluctance, as he answered the question in Spanish. A short conversation ensued, in which the dark stranger seemed to ask innumerable questions. Warwick, to give curt replies, and the names Gabrielle and Ottila to occur with familiar frequency. Sylvia knew nothing of the language, but received an impression that Warwick was not overjoyed at the meeting, that the youth was both pleased and perplexed by finding him there, and that neither parted with much regret as the distance slowly widened between the boats, and with a farewell salute parted company, each taking a different branch of the river which divided just there. For the first time Warwick allowed Mark to take his place at the oar, and sat looking into the clear depths below, as if some scene lay there which other eyes could not discover. "'Who is that olive-coloured party with the fine eyes and foreign accent?' asked Mark, lazily rowing. "'Gabriel Andre. "'Is he an Italian?' "'No, a Cuban. "'I forgot you'd tried that mixture of Spain and Alabama. "'How was it?' as such climates always are to me, intoxicating today, innovating tomorrow. How long were you there? Three months. I feel tropically inclined, so tell us about it. There is nothing to tell. I'll prove that by a catechism. Where did you stay? In Havana. Of course, but with whom? Gabriel Andre. The father of the saffron youth? Yes. Of whom did the family consist? Four persons. Mark, leave Mr. Warwick alone. As long as he answers, I shall question. Name the four persons, Adam. Gabrielle Senior, Dolores his wife, Gabrielle Junior, and Catalina his sister. Ah, now we progress. Was Signorita Catalina as comely as her brother? More so. You adored her, of course. I loved her. Great heavens, what discoveries we make! He likes it, I know, by the satirical glimmer in his eye. Therefore I continue. She adored you, of course. She loved me. You will return and marry her? No. Your depravity appalls me. Did I volunteer its discovery? I demand it now. You left this girl believing that you adored her. She knew I was fond of her. The parting was tender, on her part. Iceberg! She wept in your arms, and gave me an orange. You cherished it, of course. I ate it immediately. What want of sentiment! You promised to return? Yes. But we'll never keep the promise. I never break one. Yet we'll not marry her. By no means. Ask how old the lady was, Mark. Age, Warwick. Seven. Mark caught a crab of the largest size at this reply, and remained where he fell among the ruins of his castle in Spain, which he had erected with the scanty materials vouchsafed him, while Warwick went back to his meditations. A drop of rain roused Sylvia from the contemplation of an imaginary portrait of the little Cuban girl, and looking skyward she saw that the frolicsome wind had prepared a practical joke for them in the shape of a thunder-shower. A consultation was held, and it was decided to row on till a house appeared, in which they would take refuge 
till the storm was over. On they went, but the rain was in greater haste than they, and a summary drenching was effected before the toot of a dinner horn guided them to shelter. Landing, they marched over the fields, a moist and mirthful company, towards a red farmhouse standing under venerable elms, with a patriarchal air which promised hospitable treatment and good cheer. A promise speedily fulfilled by the lively old woman, who appeared with an energetic shoo for the speckled hens congregated in the porch, and a hearty welcome for the weather-beaten strangers. "'Sakes alive!' she exclaimed. "'You been a mess, ain't you? Come right in and make yourselves to home. Abel, take the men-folks up chamber, and fit him out with anything dry he can lay your hands on. Phoebe, see this poor little creature, and bring her down looking less like a drowned kitten. Nat, clear up your whittlings, so's they kin toast their feet when they come down. And Kinthy, don't dish up dinner just yet.' These directions were given with such vigorous illustration, and the old face shone with such friendly zeal, that the four submitted at once, sure that the kind soul was pleasing herself in serving them, and finding something very attractive in the place, the people, and their own position. Abel, a staid farmer of forty, obeyed his mother's order regarding men-folks, and Phoebe, a buxom girl of sixteen, led Sylvia to her own room, eagerly offering her best. As she dried and redressed herself, Sylvia made sundry discoveries which added to the romance and the enjoyment of the adventure. A smart gown lay on the bed in the low chamber, also various decorations upon chair and table, suggesting that some festival was afloat, and a few questions elicited the facts. Grandpa had seven sons and three daughters, all living, all married, and all blessed with flocks of children. Grandpa's birthday was always celebrated by a family gathering, but today, being the fiftieth anniversary of his wedding, the various households had resolved to keep it with unusual pomp and all were coming for a supper, a dance, and a sing at the end. Upon receipt of which intelligence, Sylvia proposed an immediate departure, but the grandmother and daughter cried out at this, pointed to the still-falling rain, the lowering sky, the wet heap on the floor, and insisted on the strangers all remaining to enjoy the festival, and give an added interest by their presence. Half-promising what she wholly desired, Sylvia put on Phoebe's second-best blue gingham gown, for the preservation of which she added a white apron, and completing the whole with a pair of capacious shoes, went down to find her party and reveal the state of affairs. They were bestowed in the prim best parlour, and greeted her with a peal of laughter, for all were en costume. Abel was a stout man, and his garments hung upon Moor with a melancholy air. Mark had disdained them, and with an eye to effect laid hands on an old uniform, in which he looked like a volunteer of 1812, while Warwick's superior height placed Abel's wardrobe out of the question, and Grandpa, taller than any of his seven goodly sons, supplied him with a sober suit, roomy, square-flapped, and venerable, which became him, and with his beard produced the curious effect of a youthful patriarch. To Sylvia's relief, it was unanimously decided to remain trusting to their own penetration to discover the most agreeable method of returning the favour, and regarding the adventure as a welcome change, after two days' solitude, all went out to dinner prepared to enact their parts with spirit. The meal being dispatched, Mark and Warwick went to help Abel with some outdoor arrangements, and begging Grandma to consider him one of her own boys, Moore tied on an apron and fell to work with Sylvia, laying the long table which was to receive the coming stores. 
True breeding is often as soon felt by the uncultivated as by the cultivated, and the zeal with which the strangers threw themselves into the business of the hour won the family, and placed them all in friendly relations at once. The old lady let them do what they would, admiring everything, and declaring over and over that her new assistants beat her boys and girls to nothing with their tastiness and smartness. Sylvia trimmed the table with common flowers, till it was an inviting sight before a viand appeared upon it and hung green boughs about the room with candles here and there to lend a festal light. Moore trundled great cheese in from the dairy, brought milk pans without mishap, disposed dishes and caused Nat to cleave to him by the administration of surreptitious titbits and jocular suggestions, for Phoebe tumbled about in everyone's way, quite wild with excitement and Grandma stood in her pantry like a culinary general, swaying a big knife for a baton, as she issued orders and marshalled her forces, the busiest and merriest of them all. When the last touch was given, Moore discarded his apron and went to join Mark. Sylvia presided over Phoebe's toilette, and then sat herself down to support Nat through the trying half-hour before, as he expressed it, the party came in. The twelve-years boy was a cripple, one of those household blessings which, in the guise of an affliction, keep many hearts tenderly united by a common love and pity. A cheerful creature, always chirping like a cricket on the hearth as he sat carving or turning bits of wood into useful or ornamental shapes, for such as cared to buy them of him, and hoarding up the proceeds like a little miser for one more helpless than himself. "'What are those, Nat?' asked Sylvia, with the interest that always won small people, because their quick instincts felt that it was sincere. "'They're my spoons. Postle spoons, they call em. You see, I've got a cousin what reads a sight, and one day he says to me, "'Nat, in a book I see something about a set of spoons with a postle head on each of em. You make some, and they'll sell, I bet.' So I got Grandpa's Bible and found the pictures of the postles, and worked and worked till I got the faces good. And now it's fine, for they do sell, and I'm saving up a lot. It ain't for me, you know, but Mother.' "'Cause she's worse than I be. "'Is she sick, Nat?' "'Oh, ain't she? "'When she hasn't stood up this nine year. "'We were smashed in a wagon that tipped over when I was three years old. "'It had done something to my legs, but it broke her back "'and made her no use, only just to pet me "'and keep us all kind of stiddy, you know. "'Ain't you seen her? Don't you want to?' "'Would she like it? "'She admires to see folks and asked about you at dinner, "'so I guess you'd better go see her.' Looky here, you like them spoons, and I'm a-going to give you one. I'll give you all on em, if it wasn't promised. I can make one more in time, so you just take your pick, cause I like you, and I want you to not to forget me. Sylvia chose St. John, because it resembled more, she thought, bespoke and paid for a whole set, and privately resolved to send tools and rare woods to the little artist, that he might serve his mother in his own pretty way. Then Nat took up his crutches, and hopped nimbly before her to the room, where a plain, serene-faced woman lay knitting, with her best cap on, her clean handkerchief, and large green fan laid out upon the coverlet. This was evidently the best room of the house. And as Sylvia sat talking to the invalid, her eye discovered many traces of that refinement which comes through the affections. Nothing seemed too good for daughter patience. Birds, books, flowers, and pictures were plentiful here, though visible nowhere else. Two easy-chairs sat beside the bed, showed where the old folks oftenest sat. Abel's home corner was there by the antique desk, 
covered with farmer's literature and samples of seeds. Phoebe's work-basket stood in the window. Nat's lathe in the sunniest corner, and from the speckless carpet to the canary's clear water-glass, all was exquisitely neat, for love and labour were the handmaids who served the helpless woman, and asked no wages but her comfort. Sylvia amused her new friends mightily, for finding that neither mother nor son had any complaints to make, any sympathy to ask, she exerted herself to give them what both needed, and kept them laughing by a lively recital of her voyage and its mishaps. "'Ain't she prime, mother?' was Nat's candid commentary, when the story ended, and he emerged red and shiny from the pillows where he had burrowed with his boyish explosions of delight. "'She's very kind, dear, to amuse two stay-at-home folks like you and me, who seldom see what's going on outside four walls. You have a merry heart, miss, and I hope we'll keep it all your days, for it's a blessed thing to own.' "'I think you have something better, a contented one,' said Sylvia, as the woman regarded her with no sign of envy or regret. I ought to have. Nine years on a body's back can teach a sight of things that are worth knowing. I've learnt patience pretty well, I guess, and contentedness ain't far away, for though it sometimes seems rather long to look forward to, perhaps nine more years laying here, I just remember it might have been worse, and if I don't do much now there's all eternity to come. Something in the woman's manner struck Sylvia as she watched her softly beating some tune on the sheet, with her quiet eyes turned towards the light. Many sermons had been less eloquent to the girl than the look, the tone, the cheerful resignation of that plain face. She stooped and kissed it, saying gently, "'I shall remember this.' "'Hurray! There they be! I hear Ben!' And away clattered Nat, to be immediately absorbed into the embrace of a swarm of relatives, who now began to arrive in a steady stream. Old and young, large and small, rich and poor, with overflowing hands or trifles humbly given, all were received alike, all hugged by Grandpa, kissed by Grandma, shaken half breathless by Uncle Abel, welcomed by Aunt Patience, and danced round by Phoebe and Nat till the house seemed a great hive of hilarious and affectionate bees. At first the strangers stood apart, but Phoebe spread their story with such complimentary additions of her own that the family circle opened wide and took them in at once. Sylvia was enraptured with the wilderness of babies and leaving the others to their own devices, followed the matrons to Patience's room, and gave herself up to the pleasant tyranny of the small potentates, who swarmed over her as she sat on the floor, tugging at her hair, exploring her eyes, covering her with moist kisses, and keeping up a babble of little voices more delightful to her than the discourse of the flattered mammas who benignly surveyed her admiration and their offspring's prowess. The young people went to romp in the barn, the men, armed with umbrellas, turned out en masse to inspect the farm and stock, and compare notes over pig-pens and garden gates. But Sylvia lingered where she was, enjoying a scene which filled her with a tender pain and pleasure, for each baby was laid on Grandma's knee, its small virtues, vices, ailments and accomplishments rehearsed, its beauties examined, its strength tested, and the verdict of the family oracle pronounced upon it as it was cradled, kissed, and blessed on the kind old heart which had room for every care and joy of those who never called her mother. It was a sight the girl never forgot, because just then she was ready to receive it. Her best lessons did not come from books, and she had learned one then as she saw the fairest success of a woman's life, while watching this happy grandmother with fresh faces framing her withered one. Daughterly voices chorusing good wishes, 
and the harvest of half a century of wedded life beautifully garnered in her arms. The fragrance of coffee and recollections of Cynthia's joyful aberrations at such periods caused a breaking up of the maternal conclave. The babies were borne away to simmer between blankets until called for. The women unpacked baskets, brooded over teapots, and kept up a harmonious clack as the table was spread with pyramids of cake, regiments of pies, quagmires of jelly, snowbanks of bread, and gold mines of butter. Every possible article of food, from baked beans to wedding cake, finding a place on that sacrificial altar. Fearing to be in the way, Sylvia departed to the barn, where she found her party in a chaotic babel. For the offshoots had been as fruitful as the parent tree, and some four dozen young immortals were in full riot, the bashful roosting with the hens on remote lofts and beams, the bold flirting or playing in the full light of day, the boys whooping, the girls screaming, all effervescing as if their spirits had reached the explosive point and must find vent in noise. Mark was in his element, introducing all manner of new games, the liveliest of the old, and keeping the revel at its height. For rosy, bright-eyed girls were plenty, and the ancient uniform universally approved. Warwick had a flock of lads about him, absorbed in the marvels he was producing with knife, stick, and string. And more, a rival flock of little lasses breathless with interest in the tales he told. One on each knee, two at each side, four in a row on the hay at his feet, and the boldest of all with an arm about his neck and a curly head upon his shoulder, for Uncle Abel's clothes seemed to invest the wearer with a passport to their confidence at once. Sylvia joined this group and partook of quiet entertainment, with as childlike a relish as any of them, while the merry tumult went on about her. The toot of the horn sent the whole barnful streaming into the house like a flock of hungry chickens, where, by some process known only to the mothers of large families, everyone was wedged close about the table, and the feast began. This was none of your stand-up wafery bread and butter teas, but a thorough-going, sit-down supper, and all settled themselves with smiling satisfaction, prophetic of great powers and an equal willingness to employ them. A detachment of half-grown girls was drawn up behind Grandma as waiters. Sylvia insisted on being one of them, and proved herself a neat-handed Phyllis, though for a time slightly bewildered by the gastronomic performances she beheld. Babies ate pickles, small boys sequestered pie with a velocity that made her wink. Women swam in the tea, and the men, metaphorically speaking, swept over the table like a swarm of locusts, while the host and hostess beamed upon one another, and their robust descendants with an honest pride, which was beautiful to see. "'That Mr. Wackett ain't eat scarcely nothing.' He just sit looking round kinder me's like. Do go and make him fall on to something, or I shan't take a mite of comfort in my vittles, said Grandma, as the girl came with an empty cup. He is enjoying it with all his heart and eyes, ma'am, for we don't see such fine spectacles every day. I'll take him something that he likes and make him eat it. Sakes alive! Be you to be Miss Wackett. I'd no idea of it. You look so young. Nor I. We are only friends, ma'am. Oh! and the monosyllable was immensely expressive, as the old lady confided a knowing nod to the teapot, into whose depths she was just then peering. Sylvia walked away, wondering why persons were always thinking and saying such things. As she paused behind Warwick's chair with a glass of cream and a round of brown bread, he looked up at her with his blandest expression, though a touch of something like regret was in his voice. "'This is a sight worth living eighty hard years to see.' 
and I envy that old couple as I never envied anyone before, to rear ten virtuous children, put ten useful men and women into the world, and give them health and courage to work out their own salvation as these honest souls will do. There's a better job done for the Lord than winning a battle or ruling a state. Here is all honour to them. Drink it with me. He put the glass to her lips, drank what she left, and rising, placed her in his seat with a decisive air which few resisted. You take no thought for yourself, and are doing too much. Sit here a little, and let me take a few steps where you have taken many. He served her, and standing at her back, bent now and then to speak, still with that softened look upon the face so seldom stirred by the gentler emotions that lay far down in the deep heart of his. For never had he felt so solitary. All things must have an end, even a family feast, and by the time the last boy's buttoned peremptorily announced, Thus far shalt thou go, and no further, all professed themselves satisfied, and a general uprising took place. The surplus population were herded into parlour and chambers, while a few energetic hands cleared away, and with much clattering of dishes and wafting of towels, left Grandma's spandy clean premises as immaculate as ever. It was dark when all was done, so the kitchen was cleared, the candles lighted, Patience's door set open, and little Nat established in an impromptu orchestra composed of a table and a chair, whence the first squeak of his fiddle proclaimed that the ball had begun. Everybody danced. The babies stacked on Patience's bed or penned behind chairs, sprawled and pranced in unsteady mimicry of their elders. Ungainly farmers, stiff with labour, recalled their early days and tramped briskly as they swung their wives about with a kindly pressure of the hard hands that had worked so long together. Little pairs toddled gravely through the figures, or frisked promiscuously in a grand conglomeration of arms and legs. Gallant cousins kissed pretty cousins at exciting periods, and were not rebuked. Mark wrought several of these incipient lovers to a pitch of despair by his devotion to the comeliest damsels, and the skill with which he executed unheard-of evolutions before their admiring eyes. More let out the poorest, and the plainest, with a respect that caused their homely faces to shine, and their scant skirts to be forgotten. Warwick skimmed his five years' partner through the air in a way that rendered her speechless with delight, and Sylvia danced as she never danced before, with sticky-fingered boys, sleepy with repletion, but bound to last it out, with rough-faced men who paid her paternal compliments, with smart youths who turned sheepish, with that white lady's hand in their big brown ones and one ambitious lad who confided to her his burning desire to work a sawmill and marry a girl with black eyes and yellow hair. While perched aloft, Nat bowed away till his pale face glowed, till all hearts warmed, all feet beat responsive to the good old tunes which had put so much health into human bodies and so much happiness into human souls. At the stroke of nine the last dance came. All down the long kitchen stretched two breathless rows, Grandpa and Grandma at the top, the youngest pair of grandchildren at the bottom, and all between fathers, mothers, uncles, aunts and cousins, while such of the babies as were still extant bobbed with unabated vigour. As Nat struck up the Virginia reel, and the sturdy old couple led off as gallantly as the young ones who came tearing up to meet them, away they went, Grandpa's white hair flying in the wind, Grandma's impressive cap awry with excitement, as they ambled down the middle and finished with a kiss when their tuneful journey was done, amid immense applause from those who regarded this as the crowning event of the day. 
When all had had their turn, and twirled till they were dizzy, a short lull took place with the refreshments for such as still possessed the power of enjoying them. Then Phoebe appeared with an armful of books, and all settled themselves for the family sing. Sylvia had heard much fine music, but never any that touched her like this, for, though often discordant, it was hearty with that undercurrent of feeling which adds sweetness to the rudest lay, and is often more attractive than the most florid ornament or faultless execution. Everyone sang as everyone had danced, with all their might, shrill children, soft-voiced girls, lullaby-singing mothers, gruff boys and strong-lunged men. The old pair quavered, and still a few indefatigable babies crowed behind their little coops. Songs, ballads, comic airs, popular melodies and hymns came in rapid succession, and when they ended with that song which should be classed with sacred music, for association's sake, and standing hand in hand about the room with the golden bride and bridegroom in their midst, sang Home. Sylvia leaned against her brother with dim eyes and a heart too full to sing. Still standing thus when the last note had soared up and died, the old man folded his hands and began to pray. It was an old-fashioned prayer, such as the girl had never heard from the bishop's lips, ungrammatical, inelegant, and long. A quiet talk with God, manly in its straightforward confession of shortcomings, childlike in its appeal for guidance, fervent in its gratitude for all good gifts, and the crowning one of loving children. As if close intercourse had made the two familiar, this human father turned to the divine, as these sons and daughters turned to him, as free to ask, as confident of a reply, as all afflictions, blessings, cares and crosses were laid down before him, and the work of eighty years submitted to his hand. There were no sounds in the room, but the one voice, often tremulous with emotion and with age, the coo of some dreaming baby, or the low sob of some mother whose arms were empty as the old man stood there, rugged and white atop as the granite hills, with the old wife at his side, a circle of sons and daughters girdling them round, and in all hearts the thought that as the former wedding had been made for time, this golden one at eighty must be for eternity. While Sylvia looked and listened, a sense of genuine devotion stole over her. The beauty and the worth of prayer grew clear to her, though the earnest speech of that unlettered man, and for the first time she fully felt the nearness and the dreariness of the universal father, whom she had been taught to fear, yet longed to love. "'Now, my children, you must go before the little folks are tuckered out,' said Grandpa heartily. "'Mother and me can't say enough to thank you for the presents you've fetched us, the dutiful wishes you have given us, the pride and comfort you have always been to us. I ain't no hand at speeches, so I shan't make none, but just say if any affliction falls on any of you, remember Mother's here, to help you bear it. If any worldly loss comes to you, Remember your father's house is yourn when it stands, and so the Lord bless and keep us all. Three cheers for Grandpa and Grandma! roared a six-foot scion at a safety valve, sundry unmasculine emotions, and three rousing hurrahs made the rafters ring, struck terror into the heart of the oldest inhabitant of the rat-haunted garret, and summarily woke all the babies. Then the goodbyes began, the flurry of wrong baskets, pails and bundles in wrong places, the sorting out of small folk too sleepy to know or care what became of them, the maternal cluckings and paternal shouts for Kitty, Si, Ben, Bill, or Mary Ann. 
the piling into vehicles with much ramping of indignant horses unused to such late hours the last farewells the roll of wheels as one by one the happy loads departed and peace fell upon the household for another year i declare for it i never had sich an out and out good time since i was born into the world abram you're fit to drop and so be i now let's sit and talk it over of patience fore we go to bed the old couple got into their chairs and as they sat there side by side remembering that she had given no gift sylvia crept behind them and lending the magic of her voice to the simple air sang the fittest song for time and place john anderson my joe it was too much for grandma the old heart overflowed and the reckless of the cherished cap she laid on her head on her john's shoulder exclaiming through her tears that's the cap sheaf of the hull and i can't bear no more to-night abram lend me a handkerchief for i don't know where mine is and my face is all of a trip before the red bandana had gently performed its work in grandpa's hand sylvia beckoned her party from the room and showed them the clear moonlit night which followed the storm suggested that they should both save appearances and enjoy a novel pleasure by floating homeward instead of sleeping the tide against which they had pulled in coming up would sweep them rapidly along and make it easy to retrace in a few hours the way they had loitered over for three days the pleasant excitement of the evening had not yet subsided and all applauded the plan as fit finale to their voyage the old lady strongly objected but the young people overruled her and being re-equipped in their damaged garments they bade the friendly family a grateful adieu left their more solid thanks under nat's pillow and re-embarked upon their shining road all night sylvia lay under the canopy of boughs her brother made to shield her from the dew listening to the soft sounds about her the twitter of a restless bird the bleat of some belated lamb the ripple of a brook babbling like a baby in its sleep all night she watched the changing shores silvery green or dark with a slumberous shadow and followed the moon in its tranquil journey through the sky when it set she drew her cloak about her and pillowing her head upon her arm exchanged the waking for a sleeping dream a thick mist encompassed her when she awoke above the sun shone dimly below rose and fell the billows of the sea before her sounded the city's fitful hum and far behind her lay the green wilderness where she had lived and learned so much slowly the fog lifted the sun came dazzling down upon the sea and out into the open bay they sailed with the pennon streaming in the morning wind but still with backward glance the girl watched the misty wall that rose between her and the charmed river and still with yearning heart confessed how sweet that brief experience had been for though she had not yet discovered it like the fairy lady of shalott she had left the web and left the loom had seen the water-lilies bloom had seen the helmet and the plume and had looked down to camelot end of chapter five Recorded by Jenny Wildman.